Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? And welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping. No, that's not cow tipping, as somebody recently messaged me. Um, I'm going to be your host today for the show. Thank you for joining me here. Today, I got a case study for you on an Audi that we had some timing-related issues and a little bit more to it. Uh, It was a little bit of a a saga to get through, but I'll, I'll get to that before I jump into the case study, though. I want to make a request to the listening audience to help me out on an upcoming episode, something I'd like to do on the show. I think this will be kind of fun. Um, I was talking with somebody recently. I mean, you do this a lot when you're in a shop, you're talking to technicians and shop owners and students, and there's a lot of... (laughs) interesting, uh, you could say unexpected or even comical things that happen to us in this industry. I mean, in life in general, but especially in the automotive world, repairing, diagnosing vehicles, being in the shop, you know, you run across some really interesting things, some humorous things along the way that make for some really good stories, right? We've all got a couple stories of something just crazy that we saw, we experienced, or Maybe we caused ourselves, right? You, you completely mess something up and maybe you don't find it comical in the moment, right, when you're doing it. But looking back on it, it makes for a pretty funny story, right? Uh, and I'll tell you what, let me give you an example and then I'll explain uh, what we're going to do on the show. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you one from, <laughs> I, I have several of these, but uh, a vehicle or a situation that I really messed up that in the moment, I sure didn't find it very funny, but looking back on it, it's pretty humorous. So uh, here, here's what was going on. I was a pretty young technician. I was working at a two-bay shop. It was actually my first full-time automotive job out of high school, and the shop owner allowed us to work on our vehicles after we were off the clock, right? So as long as we were clocked out, we could pull in our own personal vehicles and we do whatever we wanted to, you know, make whatever repair we needed to. And I had this really, really awesome 91 Chevrolet K1500 Silverado pickup truck. It was fire engine red regular cab, stepside box, which the stepside box didn't really look that cool on those trucks unless you put a three inch lift and 31 inch tires on it. And then it actually looked pretty sweet. I had some BFG all terrains on there. It was a really cool looking truck. I actually missed that truck. If I had one vehicle that I could have back, it'd be that one. Uh, It's pretty sweet. Anyways, that's kind of (laughs) besides the point, but um, I was working on this truck and I had it up on the hoist, and I had a pinion seal leak on the rear diff, right? It's leaking axle fluid everywhere. So uh, pull the drive shaft off, we're going to replace the pinion seal. 
cool. Um, and I found out when I took the drive shaft off that the rear U-joint at the rear diff was loose. Okay, that makes sense why my pinion seal is leaking, right? Things vibrating all over the place. So I'm going to do the pinion seal and then I'm also going to replace that loose U-joint on the back of that drive shaft. All right, so I set the drive shaft down on the ground next to the truck. I got the truck up in the air on the hoist and we're going to do the pinion seal. And one other thing to note here, because it goes along with the story, it's wintertime, it's Minnesota, there's a lot of snow under my truck, and it's now melting onto the ground, okay? So there's puddles kind of forming below me, the shop didn't really drain that well, so there's a lot of water on the ground below where I'm working, okay? So I do my pinion seal, you know, take the yoke out and do the thing with the pinion seal, put it back together, all right, cool, now I want to get all this axle grease off of the underside of my truck because I really like this truck. It's really nice. I don't want axle grease under there. So take a can of brake clean and I spray this thing down. I get all the axle grease off of this thing. All right. And you know, there's, there's brake clean and axle grease dripping down from the truck. Okay. So the next thing I'm done with, done with my pinion seal. So now I'm going to replace the U-joint in my drive shaft. And if anyone's familiar with Chevy trucks for many, many years, there was no clips to hold the U-joint in place into the actual drive shaft. In order to remove these, if they were factory, uh, if they'd been replaced once or twice before, obviously, there, there would be clips. But the original ones came with plastic inserts that were injected into the metal at the end of the drive shaft. And there was little holes at the end, but the plastic would be injected in a liquid form and then it would solidify and then it would hold that U-joint in place, keep the caps from sliding out of the ends, right? And if you took a any type of press or a hammer and tried to get these things out with the plastic, uh, you just end up bending the drive shaft. So in order to get these out, you needed to heat up the end of the drive shaft and this plastic would expand and it would melt and it would actually shoot out of the little hole at the end of the drive shaft. And I'm sure many of you have done this before, but if you're not familiar, you need a torch or something to heat up the end of this you this drive shaft in order to take this u-joint out right it kind of looked like one of the little uh, black snakes <laughs> that kids play with on fourth of july once it comes out of there but anyways so i have the drive shaft laying on the ground next to my truck i grab my torch and uh, you know i light the torch and i bring it to the drive shaft which is on the ground about to heat that plastic up okay now if you're following along with the story i had just sprayed off the bottom side of my truck with brake clean, which now dripped down onto this puddle or pool of water underneath my truck, which is just sort of sitting there. So all the brake clean, which usually evaporates pretty quick, is now just sitting on top of this puddle of water in which my drive shaft is very, very close to. So I think you can see where this is going. <laughs> as soon as I brought the torch to the end of the drive shaft close enough to that water slash brake clean, <laughs> it ignited in a whoosh underneath my truck. And there are massive flames coming up underneath the underside of my truck, <laughs> my really nice truck and the fuel tanks right there. And I'm like, Oh crap, <laughs> what am I going to do? I mean, it was so unexpected. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally, I mean, I was young, but I'm generally pretty cognizant of let's keep the torch away from flammable things. And when something happens where you're not expecting a flammable substance to go and it goes very quickly, you're kind of like, uh, Oh shoot, what do I do? 
And so my immediate thought is fire extinguisher or garden hose. The garden hose was closer. I grabbed the garden hose and was able to douse everything uh, before anything of my truck caught on fire. Um, and luckily, I was the only one there <laughs> at the shop at the time. Uh, so my boss didn't end up finding out. But I opened the garage door and the entire place is just full of smoke. And somehow or another, the smoke alarms didn't go off. So maybe they weren't working too well in that shop. But anyways, uh, no no major harm done, but it was always a good memory and a good story. So again, why I'm telling you this is because we all have something like that, right? And maybe it's not something you messed up. Maybe it's something to do with a customer, something to do with a vehicle, maybe another coworker. Um, We've all got stuff like this that's really fun to share. And my goal is to have an episode upcoming somewhere in the near future where I share your stories, all right? And how I'm going to do this is I'm going to set up a Google call line. Well, actually, I already have. Um, But you're going to have access to a Google call line, which is a phone number. And I'll put the phone number in the show notes if you want to write it down right now. You you don't have to. It's in the show notes. But it's 612-351-2184. What you do is you call this number. Now you call this number, nobody's going to answer. It's just a Google voice uh, and there's a voicemail set up in there. And so what I'd like you to do is call this number, leave a story of something humorous, something crazy, something interesting, something you messed up, something somebody else messed up that you saw. And what I'll do is collect these and play these on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Just sort of a uh, fun event, sharing the mishaps and... <laughs> interesting things that happen in the automotive field. So um, again, just call that number, leave a voicemail, try to keep it under five minutes or so, but I'll put those together in an upcoming episode and I think that'll be a lot of fun. So anyways, um, that's my uh, future goal coming up. I'll remind everybody of that again and I'll make a post in the Facebook group as well. But let's get into the case study for today, into the technical stuff. What I'm going to be talking about this week is a 2007 Audi Q7 with a 3.6 liter VR6 BHK is the identifier for this particular engine, if anybody's a VW Audi guy. And this was a vehicle that I actually got called back on twice. I had a total of three calls for this vehicle to this shop, and it was an interesting series of events. And that's why I want to talk about it here in the podcast. So the first call for this thing was actually kind of unique. Uh, They called me because they had the engine out of this Audi and they wanted, the reason they took the engine out was to do timing chains. The timing chains had jumped or something had gone wrong. They made the initial diagnosis that the timing chains had failed. And in order to do that, you have to pull the engine on these or pull the transmission, but they pulled the engine and they have all the new components and they actually had the tools to hold the camshafts in place, but they did not feel confident in actually timing this engine. Now, you might ask yourself, why did they take on this job if they didn't feel confident in doing this? And I can't answer that. Maybe they realized they were in over their heads by the time they got the engine out. I'm not really sure. And I didn't ask a whole lot of questions here. Now, I did hesitate a little bit when they asked me, can you come in and time this for us? And then we'll reinstall it. I'm like, oh boy, I don't know about that. Because (laughs) obviously it's a big job to do this, right? 
it's a big job to pull an engine out of this thing in order to time it. And then let's say something happens that I don't get this right. And then it's on me once it's back in there. So most people would say no to this. But um, as you could tell from my earlier story about my truck, I don't always make the best decisions. <laughs> um, actually, here's the deal. I've gotten calls like this before where people want me to come in and verify timing of an engine. Like they've got the cover off and they just want me to they just want me to tell them, is the timing on on this engine or not? And I'll tell you, as my time as a tech at Firestone, I did a ton, a ton of timing chains and timing belts, and I got pretty good at being able to tell whether an engine was in time or not, and then being able to time it if I needed to. And I mean, I didn't even own all the special tools for most of the engines. One thing I would do is I would go on Google and I would find the timing tools, right, for a particular engine. If I needed a specialty tool, I'd find the tool, I'd figure out what it did, and then I'd mimic it with other tools. And I'd say 90% of the time you can do that. Yes, there are specific applications where you it just makes your life so much easier to have the specialty tools. Um, an older Audi V6 comes to mind. I think it was the 2.7 or something like that, or 3.2, where it had uh, a bar that went across and held the camshafts in place. Then that made your life a lot easier to do the timing belt. But anyways, most of the time, I could get by without these specialty tools, and I could figure out how to time these engines. I'm pretty good at it, is what I'm getting at here. Not to be arrogant or anything. I've just I've done a lot of it. I'm very confident in my ability to time an engine. But again, this is a big risk because I got to make sure that this thing is in time properly before they put it back into the engine. Otherwise, they got to pull it back out. And who's paying for that labor? Is that going to be on me at that point? So at first, I kind of said, no, I really am not interested in this. And they kept pushing, they kept pushing, and they offered me <laughs> a considerable amount of money to come do this. I'm like, okay, all right. I guess I'm easily talked into things, or maybe I'm just not very smart. But anyways, <laughs> I got talked into it. So I said, okay, well, since you got the tools, I'll come, I'll come make sure this thing's in time. And I did a little bit of research on this before I actually went to the shop. And this research actually helped me out quite a bit to feel very confident. Now, not only did I look at the service information, the procedure, which is pretty clear in what you need to do. And, and I mean, most of the time, if you have that service procedure, you can figure this stuff out. You can get engines in time, especially if you have the tools. It's, it's really not that hard. And I was like, okay, this isn't bad. But I did a little bit more research. And um, there's actually a post that Mario Rojas has on his Facebook group, the Automotive Insight Network. And it was on this exact engine in another Audi. And he went through whole bunch of struggles in order to time one of these engines. And I'm not going to outline that whole thing here. You can go check it out on that Facebook group if you choose. But there is a ton of detail in the initial post and through the comments on everything you might need to know to time one of these 3.6 liter V6 or uh, VR6 engines. Okay. And so reading through that, I mean, I realized, okay, this is a a complex procedure, but I felt very confident in what I needed to do to get this engine timed correctly. And I'm confident enough in my skills that I can get this done and the shop wants to pay me to do it. Okay, let's let's give this a shot. And uh, again, maybe I don't always make the best decisions, but I decided to go for it. So just for reference, if anyone's not familiar with these engines, I'll give you just kind of a brief uh, 
layout of how this is set up. Now, the reason you have to pull the engine to do the timing chain on this or timing chains on this engine is because it's on the backside. The timing chain is actually between the transmission and the engine. So you can't you can access the top of the chain, but you can't actually take the chains out unless you pull the transmission. And in this case, they pulled the engine. I, I don't know which way it would have been easier on this particular model, but they pulled the engine. They just had it laying on the ground for me. Have the cover off, but the only way to get there is to separate engine and transmission. Now, this is a VR6. And so if you're not familiar with that, it's almost like an inline six, but it's kind of a V engine. Uh, really, they're just uh, six cylinders that are almost in line, but just slightly in a V configuration. I mean, if you just look at the top of the head, it, I mean, it is only one cylinder head, right? It's not two cylinder heads that we would normally see on a V engine. It's just one, but it houses all the valves and the pistons are kind of in a line, just offset uh, one from another. But anyways, on the back side of this, we have two timing chains. And one timing chain starts on the back of the crank. There's a sprocket. And that timing chain is going to run up to the oil pump. And the oil pump has a sprocket on it as well. And it also acts as an idler sprocket, which means the first chain comes up from the crankshaft and spins the oil pump. And then there is another sprocket off of that that runs the upper chain that goes up to the two camshafts. Now there's only two camshafts on this engine and they run all the valves. It's not really an intake exhaust cam in this setup, but there are two cams. Each one of those has a uh, variable valve timing phaser on it. And then there's also a sprocket for the high pressure fuel pump. Okay. So we have crank oil pump, two cams and a high pressure fuel pump. That's what's on here. Combination with two chains, two tensioners in order to make this happen. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the actual setup, really not that complex. There's engines out there. I mean, I would say the GM 3.6 is more complex than this one, um, the way they have their setup. They have three chains and two idler sprockets. And of course, many, many of us have done a number of the 3.6s. And once you do anything a few times, it's really not too challenging, but it might look daunting when you first jump into it. But anyways, um, I was pretty confident again going into this, I can get this thing lined up. So in order to do that, you line up a mark on the balancer, which is on the front side of the engine for the crank. And you can actually line something up on the back side of the crank with the sprocket as well. You line up a mark on the oil pump, which that came into play with Mario's scenario. Uh, so if you read through that, you'll see that. But you line up the mark on the oil pump. You line up the marks on the cams and the VVT sprockets, and you can also count the chain links between the two sprockets. You also line up the high-pressure fuel pump, and that's an important one. Keep in mind on GDI vehicles um, that the camshaft needs to be in time in order to run the fuel pump correctly. Now, in this case, the high-pressure fuel pump doesn't run directly off of the camshaft. It has a separate sprocket and drive lobe for the high pressure fuel pump that's really not tied directly to the camshaft, but it's driven off the timing chain. What I'm getting at here is that has to be in time, right? Because if the computer pulses the solenoid for the high pressure fuel pump at the wrong time, 
we're not going to develop pressure the way that we're supposed to. It'll be too high or too low. So this thing has to be in time as well. So you have to make sure that you get that high pressure fuel pump sprocket in time, which is pretty easy. And the tool actually includes something to hold it in time for you. And I should mention too, the tool we had held the camshafts in place because these can move independently from the phasers um, if you don't have them um, in the correct position, but the bar just holds them in place and you're pretty much good to go at that point. Uh, you line up all your marks. It's the most detail I can go through on a podcast for you on this. If you want more information on it, check out Mario's post. It's got all the pictures and all the goodies there, but I go through this, I line everything up. Double, triple check everything because, again, this is a lot of work to get to this point. <laughs> they pulled the engine on this thing. I want to make sure that I got everything right. Double check with service info. Double check with Mario's post. Okay, I got this thing. Rotated the engine a few times. I feel confident about this, um, that they are ready to throw this thing back in and get it back out on the road. All right, cool. So you pay me. And I'll see you guys. A couple days go by, and then they call me. They got the engine back in there, and they tell me, they have timing codes in this. I'm like, Ugh. I'm immediately regretting my decision at this point. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll come, I'll come back and check it out. So I get there and I scan it and uh, P0346 is what's present in, in the engine control module. Uh, this code reads as cam position sensor A circuit range performance bank two. So th there's a lot going on there. Let me break this down. Um, the A and this is something that is true to most engines, doesn't really apply to this one too much. But if you see A and B listed for cam sensors, A is always intake, at least as much as I have found, and B is always exhaust, again, as much as I have found. As far as when they reference cams A and B, A is intake and B is exhaust. Well, if you look at all the codes for this engine, they actually reference both cams as A. And if you remember what I was saying, there's really no intake and exhaust cam in this engine. They both cams run both intake and exhaust valves because this, again, this engine is kind of a V that uses one head. And so one camshaft will run one bank, if you want to consider that, and the other camshaft will run the other bank. So it's um, almost like a single overhead camshaft setup, if you wanted to consider it that way. But anyways, this one is for cam position sensor A, which doesn't tell me anything since they're both listed at A, but the bank is what tells me what side of the engine I'm dealing with. And it was bank two, and bank two is going to be the driver's side. If the engine is installed in the vehicle, it's going to be the driver's side of the engine. All right. It would be the intake side of the head, but it's not the intake cam in this case, just for reference. Now, I read into the code because I wanted to know, of course, we've seen camshaft codes pop up when engines are out of time. That's definitely a possibility, right? And I'm worried about that, of course, because I was the one who timed it and it's a big job. But I read into it and it says incorrect amount of phase changes in a given amount of engine revolutions. And it gives me a number, but that doesn't really apply too much here. But does that mean that it's not seeing pulses from the cam sensor at the right time? Or does it mean that it's just not seeing the right amount of cam pulses? I'm not sure. 
Again, the code said circuit range performance. Um, I want to see what's coming out of this sensor. Is this thing producing a signal? And if it is, I'll do some cam crank correlations and figure out uh, if I'm in the weeds here or what. But anyways, pull out the U-scope, find the sensor on the back side of the cylinder head. Fairly easy to access, actually. And I go on the signal wire, start the engine. I got nothing coming out of this sensor. No signal at all, which... Actually, I'm pretty happy to see this at this point because if I saw a signal, well, now I'm worried that it's out of time, but I see no signal. All right, cool. Check for five volts. Check for a ground. It has everything there. Okay, cool. Um, what's what's happening here? It's just a sensor, actually. So I pull the sensor out. There's one bolt. I pull it out. They smashed it at some point or another when they were reassembling this engine. You could see the end of the sensor smash. So I bring it into them and say, hey, put a sensor in this thing and it should be fine. Uh, you know, obviously it can't check the timing for itself uh, with a busted sensor, but uh, again, I'm, I'm feeling con more confident now <laughs> that I, that I timed this thing right, but time will tell. So anyways, they get another camshaft sensor. They put it in there. Uh, good to go. They send it out. Sweet. All right. And I don't hear from them for another two weeks on this vehicle. But after a couple of weeks, they call me back again for the same car. I'm like, oh boy. Okay, what's what's next on this thing? They said it came in, had a bunch of misfires, was running like garbage. And they also said that they replaced all the ignition coils and spark plugs. And it seemed to take care of the misfires. Okay, but... After the fact, they went out and drove it. I don't know if they gave it back to the customer or if they just test drove it. They said it had a really low power. It was very sluggish after the fact. But misses seem to be gone, but it seems to just fall on its face to be very sluggish and low power. And they wanted me to come check this out. And I, I think they were kind of thinking timing, but okay, let me, let me see what's going on here. So I confirm what they're talking about. I went out and drove it and honestly, I would have swore that this thing was a catalytic converter that was plugged up. And it kind of made sense, right? They told me misfire codes, ignition related, raw fuel getting dumped into the exhaust, plugged up cats. Okay. We've, we've all been here before. And I think most of us have driven a vehicle that had a restricted exhaust. It's a very specific feeling when you're trying to accelerate this engine and you can hear the engine is trying, it wants to go. It's not like there's nothing when you hit the pedal. You can hear it just struggling, but it can't breathe. It can't accelerate the way that you want to. You can't hit a certain RPM. And of course, the power output's very low. Felt just like a catalytic converter to me. And they actually said they thought the same thing, but they weren't able to confirm that it was a converter. So I do want to check codes here. The only code in there is a P0327, which is for a knock sensor. I didn't think much of that because um, another thing that can happen when you have a plugged up cat is you can get detonation. I was like, well, maybe it set that code. Now, I should have read into that code more. We'll get back to that. But I just sort of put it in the back of my mind for now. I'm going after these cats because, man, it feels like a cat that's plugged up and ignition misfires that were corrected uh, could have definitely caused this. So a couple other things I wanted to do here was just a VE test to confirm, you know, of what's happening. I want to see the airflow through the engine came out at like 50%, um, very, very low. Uh, now we weren't able to hit a very high RPM. Um, I don't even know what this thing redlines at, but we weren't there. Um, 
And I also looked at my fuel trims and Lambda while I was doing this, right? Because I want to make sure it's not a fuel-related issue, doesn't feel like it, but everything checked out, right? We weren't running lean at this point when I'm trying to accelerate low power. Um, so I'm not worried about like a mass airflow sensor reading wrong or a fuel issue or anything like that. We're getting proper fuel delivery. It's just the engine won't get out of its own way. So at this point, I'm pretty confident um, that this is exhaust-related, causing the engine to not breathe properly. It's restricted exhaust. So how do we confirm this? I'm going to pull out a plug, and I'm going to throw my WPS in cylinder. One of my favorite accurate ways to measure exhaust back pressure, because when that exhaust valve opens up and that piston goes up on its exhaust stroke, we not only see what is present in the cylinder, but we see what's present in the exhaust as far as pressure, right? And so... I just want to see is their back pressure. So I test one of the uh, bank one cylinders because there actually is um, two different cats that come off the engine, bank one and bank two. So, you know, potential for one of those to be restricted um, and not the other, or maybe a downstream uh, cat to be restricted and they both are breathing incorrectly, but I want to check both of them. And I do this and I load the engine and I actually find there's little to no back pressure. And after talking to them, they did one of these tests with a mechanical gauge in an O2 uh, sensor port, and they measured the same thing. And that's kind of why they called me on this. So there's no back pressure. So it's not restricted exhaust in this thing like I was thinking, even though it really, really felt like it when I was driving. So what else could cause this scenario? What else could cause low VE, uh, that number to be really low and low power, but fuel trims seem to be okay. And, you know, I was thinking maybe an intake restriction. I checked the air box, made sure there's nothing obstructing it, the air duct tube, everything seemed to be okay there. I was thinking timing, right? Um, and this is what led me back to checking codes. I'm like, let me just make sure there's no timing codes that I missed in this thing. Because if the timing's off, I would expect fuel trims to be off in that case. Um, but maybe that's what's causing this engine just to not breathe properly. So I go back in. And again, the only code that's present in the PCM at this point is a P0327, which reads as... Uh, knock sensor signal output bank one. Okay. And again, I didn't think much of that at first, but I decided, okay, let me do a little bit of research on this code just to see. And I'm glad I did. I punched this into Identifix and it was pretty helpful. They have a note about this code. If this code sets in this particular application, it puts the engine into a limited power mode. And there's not necessarily a message on the dash like you'd see with an electric throttle, but it definitely lowers the power output of the engine. And one of the ways it does this, and I saw this on the scan tool, is it actually backs off the ignition timing severely, which totally makes sense, right? That's the whole point of a knock sensor is to detect detonation and then back off the timing in order to correct for it. So the computer decides... Well, I can't see the knock sensor signal, and I don't know if there's detonation. Let's protect this engine. We're going to really back off the timing on this engine. And again, you could see this as a data pit. You could go into the individual ignition timing for each cylinder and look at the amount that it retarded the timing. You could also look at the overall timing in advance for a cylinder and see that it was very low compared to where it needed to be for proper acceleration. Okay, So what I did was I cleared this code out just wiped it out of the computer. And I just want to see, does this thing come right back? Because the code read as a circuit code or a uh, circuit performance code for uh, the bank one 
knock sensor. And it didn't come back right away. Engine running in park. I revved it up. It didn't come back. I was like, all right, let me go test drive this thing. So I went out and test drove it. And my first run with this thing, it actually accelerated really, really well, considerably better than what it did before. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is this is the power that we were missing out of this thing. And after I think it was about two runs, two pulls with the engine, it went back into its limited power mode. It set the code again. Okay. So we're dealing with, you know, a hard fault here, but it's one of those things you want to consider is when is a computer looking for the conditions to set the code? When's it running the monitor? What's the enable criteria for this thing? And if you look in the service info for this one, it lays it out pretty specifically for you. Actually, the engine has to be above 2000 RPM and the engine load has to be above 24%. So realistically, you got to be driving and accelerating before it will even look for this code. All right. And again, makes sense, right? That's when detonation is going to happen is under a load. Um, otherwise, it won't look for it. So if you want to confirm this code, you know, after you fix it, you got to go drive it. You can't just do it in the stall. And there's lots of codes like that. So we always want to be cognizant of what it takes for the computer to even look to see if there's a problem. Okay. And it made sense what was going on here. So let's figure out what's wrong with this thing. Again, it's just a knock sensor uh, outputs an AC voltage to the PCM to indicate that there's detonation. Um, and even if there's not detonation, the sensors will output some voltage out onto the signal wire. And the computer actually expects to see that at a specific RPM. Again, when this thing's looking at the code. And so you'll see some sensors that use a bias voltage. Uh, you'll see some sensors that just output their voltage, and that's what the computer's looking for. Um, either way, I decide, okay, we need to check for this, right? I just want to verify, is this thing putting out any voltage, or do we have a circuit issue, or something else going on here? Well, I didn't have to get very far, because once I accessed the connector, where I was going to test, and put my scope on there, and look for AC voltage, I found that the connector was all wrapped in electrical tape. Like, okay, well, that's obviously not factory. Better check this out and see what's going on. And I unwrap the electrical tape, which had been put on there, and the connector just falls apart. Okay, male, female end just falls apart. I didn't have to release anything. It's your standard Audi clip uh, with a little square piece that you put down. I, I really don't like those clips. I think <laughs> they always break or they don't want to come loose. Oh, in this case, didn't want to clip together. And I think that's what the tech was fighting. You could push these male and female ends of this connector for the knock sensor together as hard as you could and the little clip would not grab and the clip was there and the little piece for the clip to grab to was there but they just wouldn't click together and I look inside the connector and it was all full of dirt and stuff so we got some compressed air we blew it out I put a little bit of lubricant in for the weather packing and I found that helps connectors slide together a little easier did that, pushed it together. I heard the thing click, tried to pull it apart, and it wouldn't release at that point. Go out, drive the vehicle. Codes don't set, full power for this thing. Accelerates great or 
as good as it can. This car was kind of a piece of crap, but um, anyways, uh, no codes and we're good to go. So through all that, I guess I did actually time the vehicle correctly. Of course, I shouldn't say that. They'll probably call me on Monday saying that there's timing codes in this thing. And actually, so when I, when I got back to the shop, I'm pulling it back in after my final test drive and the tech's looking at the car kind of funny and I get out and the thing was pouring coolant (laughs) out of the backside of the engine and we popped the hood and it was some hose or something that had started leaking. I'm like, yeah, that's on you guys. (laughs) I was just driving this thing. I wasn't beating on it too hard. I mean, I was doing full throttle runs, but, uh, Anyways, that was the case study on the Audi this week. So hopefully you enjoyed that, learned something from that. Uh, Maybe just don't take on jobs like that. Maybe that's the lesson for today. (laughs) Um, But uh, I found it pretty interesting, uh, everything that I had to go through. And uh, But other than that, just like to thank everybody for listening. And don't forget, uh, I'll put that number for the Google Voice in the show notes. You can call that number. And you can leave your uh, humorous automotive story and we'll get it together on an episode. So thanks again. And let's get out there. Start fixing the world one car at a time.